Hello, and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with the first chapter of The Wretched of the Earth. I did recalculate this chapter is going to be even more parts than I had first estimated. There's a lot to get through. As a quick recap, it's been exploring some of the different ways violence manifests, what gets called violence, and what the colonizer and colonized do, and how those do or do not get classified as violence. Last week in particular, we talked a little bit about what decolonization would look like and how it can be co-opted by people and how that can affect the end result of decolonization. But with that out of the way, let's continue with our reading of this chapter. We must also notice in this ripening process the role played by the history of the resistance at the time of the conquest. The great figures of the colonized people are always those who led the national resistance to invasion. Behanzin, Sundiata, Samari, Abdel Kader, all spring again to life with peculiar intensity in the period which comes directly before action. This is the proof that the people are getting ready to begin to go forward again, to put an end to the static period begun by colonization, and to make history. The uprising of the new nation and the breaking down of colonial structures are the result of one of two causes, either of a violent struggle of the people in their own right, or of action on the part of surrounding colonized peoples, which acts as a break on the colonial regime in question. A colonized people is not alone. In spite of all that colonialism can do, its frontiers remain open to new ideas and echoes from the world outside. It discovers that violence is in the atmosphere, that it here and there bursts out, and here and there sweeps away the colonial regime. That same violence which fulfills for the native a role that is not simply informatory, but also operative. The great victory of the Vietnamese people at Dian Van Phu is no longer, strictly speaking, a Vietnamese victory. Since July 1954, the question which the colonized peoples have asked themselves has been, what must be done to bring about another Dian Bien Phu? How can we manage it? Not a single colonized individual could ever again doubt the possibility of a Dian Bien Phu. The only problem was how best to use the forces at their disposal, how to organize them, and when to bring them into action. This encompassing violence does not work upon the colonized people only. It modifies the attitude of the colonialists, who become aware of manifold Dien Bien Phu's. This is why a veritable panic takes hold of the colonialist governments in turn. Their purpose is to capture the vanguard, to turn the movement of liberation toward the right, and to disarm the people. Quick, quick, let's decolonize. Decolonize the Congo before it turns into another Algeria. Vote the constitutional framework for all Africa. Create the French communauté. Renovate the same communauté, but for God's sake, let's decolonize quick. And they decolonize at such a rate that they impose independence on Félix Fouet-Bonnet to the strategy of Dien Bien Phu. Defined by the colonized peoples, the colonialist replies by the strategy of encirclement, based on the respect of the sovereignty of states. But let us return to that atmosphere of violence, that violence which is just under the skin. We have seen that in its process towards maturity, many leads are attached to it, to control it, and show it the way out. 
Yet in spite of the metamorphoses which the colonial regime imposes upon it in the way of tribal or regional quarrels, that violence makes its way forward, and the native identifies his enemy and recognizes all his misfortunes, throwing all the exacerbated might of his hate and anger into this new channel. But how do we pass from the atmosphere of violence to violence in action? What makes the lid blow off? There is first of all the fact that this development does not leave the settler's blissful existence intact. The settler who understands the natives is made aware by several straws in the wind showing that something is afoot. Good natives become scarce. Silence falls when the oppressor approaches. Sometimes looks are black and attitudes and remarks openly aggressive. The nationalist parties are astir. They hold a great many meetings, the police are increased and reinforcements of soldiers are brought in. The settlers, above all the farmers isolated on their land, are the first to become alarmed. They call for energetic measures. The authorities do in fact take some spectacular measures. They arrest one or two leaders, they organize military parades and maneuvers, and air force displays. But the demonstrations and warlike exercises, the smell of gunpowder which now fills the atmosphere, these things do not make the people draw back. These bayonets and cannonades only serve to reinforce their aggressiveness. The atmosphere becomes dramatic, and everyone wishes to show that he is ready for anything. And it is in these circumstances that the guns go off by themselves, for nerves are jangled, fear reigns, and everyone is trigger happy. A single commonplace incident is enough to start the machine gunning. Setif in Algeria, the central quarries in Morocco, Moramanga in Madagascar. The repressions, far from calling a halt to the forward rush of national consciousness, urge it on. Mass slaughter in the colonies at a certain stage of the embryonic development of consciousness increases that consciousness, for the hecatombs are an indication that between oppressors and oppressed, everything can be solved by force. It must be remarked here that the political parties have not called for armed insurrection, and have made no preparations for such an insurrection. All these repressive measures, all those actions which are the result of fear, are not within the leader's intentions. They are overtaken by events. At this moment then, colonialism may decide to arrest the nationalist leaders. But today the governments of colonized countries know very well that it is extremely dangerous to deprive the masses of their leaders, for then the people, unbridled, fling themselves into jackeries mutinies, and brutish murders. The masses give free rein to their bloodthirsty instincts and force colonialism to free their leaders, to whom falls the difficult task of bringing them back to order. The colonized people, who have spontaneously brought their violence to the colossal task of destroying the colonial system, will very soon find themselves with the barren inert slogan, release X or Y. Footnote 7. Then colonialism will release these men, and hold discussions with them. The time for dancing in the streets has come. In certain circumstances, the party political machine may remain intact, but as a result of the colonialist repression and of the spontaneous reaction of the people, the parties find themselves outdistanced by their militants. The violence of the masses is vigorously pitted against the military forces of the occupying power, and the situation deteriorates and comes to a head. Those leaders who are free remain, therefore, on the touchline. They have suddenly become useless with their bureaucracy and their reasonable demands. 
Yet we see them, far removed from events, attempting the crowning imposture, that of speaking in the name of the silenced nation. As a general rule, colonialism welcomes the godsend with open arms, transforms these blind mouths into spokesmen, and in two minutes endows them with independence, on condition that they restore order. So we see that all parties are aware of the power of such violence, and that the question is not always to reply to it by a greater violence, but rather to see how to relax the tension. What is the real nature of this violence? We have seen that it is the intuition of the colonized masses that their liberation must, and can only, be achieved by force. By what spiritual aberration do these men, without technique, starving and enfeebled, confronted with the military and economic might of the occupation, come to believe that violence alone will free them? How can they hope to triumph? It is because violence, and this is the disgraceful thing, may constitute, insofar as it forms part of its system, the slogan of a political party. The leaders may call on the people to enter upon an armed struggle. This problematical question has to be thought over. When militarist Germany decides to settle its frontier disputes by force, we are not in the least surprised. But when the people of Angola, for example, decide to take up arms, when the Algerian people reject all means which are not violent, these are proofs that something has happened or is happening at this very moment. The colonized races, those slaves of modern times, are impatient. They know that this apparent folly alone can put them out of reach of colonial oppression. A new type of relations is established in the world. The underdeveloped peoples try to break their chains, and the extraordinary thing is that they succeed. It could be argued that in these days of Sputniks, it is ridiculous to die of hunger. But for the colonized masses, the argument is more down to earth. The truth is that there is no colonial power today which is capable of adopting the only form of contest which has a chance of succeeding, namely, the prolonged establishment of large forces of occupation. As far as their internal situation is concerned, the colonialist countries find themselves faced with contradictions in the form of working-class demands which necessitate the use of their police forces. As well, in the present international situation, these countries need their troops to protect their regimes. Finally, there is the well-known myth of liberating movements directed from Moscow. In the regime's panic-stricken reasoning, this signifies, if that goes on, there is a risk that the communists will turn the troubles to account and infiltrate into these parts. In the native's eagerness, the fact that he openly brandishes the threat of violence proves that he is conscious of the unusual character of the contemporary situation and that he means to profit by it. But, still on the level of immediate experience, the native, who has seen the modern world penetrate into the furthermost corners of the bush, is most acutely aware of all the things he does not possess. The masses, by a sort of, if we may say so, childlike process of reasoning, convince themselves that they have been robbed of all these things. That is why in certain underdeveloped countries, the masses forge ahead very quickly, and realize two or three years after independence that they have been frustrated, that it wasn't worthwhile, fighting, and that nothing could really change. In 1789, after the bourgeois revolution, the smallest French peasants benefited substantially from the upheaval. 
but it is a common place to observe and to say that in the majority of cases, for 95% of the population of underdeveloped countries, independence brings no immediate change. The enlightened observer takes note of the existence of a kind of masked discontent, like the smoking ashes of a burnt-down house after the fire has been put out, which still threaten to burst into flames again. So they say that the natives want to go too quickly. Now, let us never forget that only a very short time ago they complained of their slowness, their laziness, and their fatalism. Already we see that violence used in specific ways, at the moment of the struggle for freedom, does not magically disappear after the ceremony of trooping the national colours. It has all the less reason for disappearing, since the reconstruction of the nation continues within the framework of cutthroat competition between capitalism and socialism. This competition gives an almost universal dimension to even the most localised demands. Every meeting held, every act of repression committed, reverberates in the international arena. The murders of Sharpeville shook public opinion for months. In the newspapers, over the wavelengths, and in private conversations, Sharpeville has become a symbol. It was through Sharpeville that men and women first became acquainted with the problem of apartheid in South Africa. Moreover, we cannot believe that demagogy alone is the explanation for the sudden interest the big powers show in the petty affairs of underdeveloped regions. Each jackery, each act of sedition in the third world, makes up part of a picture framed by the Cold War. Two men are beaten up in Salisbury, and at once the whole of a block goes into action, talks about those two men, and uses the beating up incident to bring up the particular problem of Rhodesia, linking it, moreover, with the whole African question, and with the whole question of colonised people. The other block, however, is equally concerned in measuring by the magnitude of the campaign and the local weakness of its system. Thus the colonised peoples realise that neither clan remains outside local incidents, they no longer limit themselves to regional horizons, for they have caught on to the fact that they live in an atmosphere of international stress. When every three months or so we hear that the 6th or 7th fleet is moving towards such and such a coast, when Khrushchev threatens to come to Castro's aid with rockets, when Kennedy decides upon some desperate situation for the Laos question, the colonised person or the newly independent native has the impression that whether he wills it or not, he is being carried away in a kind of frantic cavalcade. In fact, he is marching in it already. Let us take, for example, the case of the governments of recently liberated countries. The men at the head of affairs spend two-thirds of their time in watching the approaches and trying to anticipate the dangers which threaten them, and the remaining one-third of their time in working for their country. At the same time, they search for allies. Obedient to the same dialectic, the national parties of opposition leave the paths of parliamentary behaviour. They also look for allies to support them in their ruthless ventures into sedition. The atmosphere of violence, after having coloured all the colonial phase, continues to dominate national life. For as we have already said, the third world is not cut off from the rest. Quite the contrary, it is at the middle of the whirlpool. 
This is why the statesmen of underdeveloped countries keep up indefinitely the tone of aggressiveness and exasperation in their public speeches, which in the normal way ought to have disappeared. Herein, also, may be found the reasons for that lack of politeness so often spoken of in connection with newly established rulers. But what is less visible is the extreme courtesy of these same rulers in their contacts with their brothers or their comrades. Discourtesy is first and foremost a manner to be used in dealings with the others, with the former colonists who come to observe and to investigate. The ex-native too often gets the impression that these reports are already written. The photos which illustrate the article are simply a proof that one knows what one is talking about, and that one has visited the country. The report intends to verify the evidence. Everything's going badly out there since we left. Frequently, reporters complain of being badly received, of being forced to work under bad conditions, and of being fenced around by indifference or hostility. All this is quite normal. The nationalist leaders know that international opinion is formed solely by the Western press. Now, when a journalist from the West asks us questions, it is seldom in order to help us. In the Algerian war, for example, even the most liberal of the French reporters never ceased to use ambiguous terms in describing our struggle. When we reproached them for this, they replied in all good faith that they were being objective. For the native, objectivity is always directed against him. We may in the same way come to understand the new tone which swamped international diplomacy at the United Nations General Assembly in September 1960. The representatives of the colonial countries were aggressive and violent, and carried things to extremes. But the colonial peoples did not find that they exaggerated. The radicalism of the African spokesman brought the abscess to a head, and showed up the inadmissible nature of the veto, and of the dialogue between the great powers, and above all, the tiny role reserved for the third world. Diplomacy, as inaugurated by the newly independent peoples, is no longer an affair of nuances, of implications, and of hypnotic passes. For the nation's spokesmen are responsible, at one and the same time, for safeguarding the unity of the nation, the progress of the masses toward a state of well-being, and the right of all peoples to bread and liberty. Thus, it is a diplomacy which never stops moving, a diplomacy which leaps ahead, in strange contrast to the motionless, petrified world of colonization. And when Mr. Khrushchev brandishes his shoe at the United Nations, or thumps the table with it, there's not a single ex-native, nor any representative of an underdeveloped country, who laughs. For what Mr. Khrushchev shows when the colonized countries which are looking on is that he, the Mujik, who moreover is the possessor of space rockets, treats these miserable capitalists in the way that they deserve. In the same way, Castro sitting in military uniform in the United Nations organization does not scandalize the underdeveloped countries. What Castro demonstrates is the consciousness he has of the continuing existence of the rule of violence. The astonishing thing is that he did not come into the UNO with a machine gun. But if he had, would anyone have minded? All the jacqueries and desperate deeds, all those bands armed with cutlasses or axes, find their nationality in the implacable struggle which opposes socialism and capitalism. In 1945, 
the 45,000 dead at Setif could pass unnoticed. In 1947, the 90,000 dead in Madagascar could be the subject of a simple paragraph in the papers. In 1952, the 200,000 victims of the repression in Kenya could meet with relative indifference. This was because the international contradictions were not sufficiently distinct. Already, the Korean and Indo-Chinese wars had begun a new phase. But it is above all Budapest and Suez which constitute the decisive moments of this confrontation. Strengthened by the unconditional support of the socialist countries, the colonized peoples fling themselves with whatever arms they have against the impregnable citadel of colonialism. If this citadel is invulnerable to knives and naked fists, it is no longer so when we decide to take into account the context of the Cold War. In this fresh juncture, the Americans take their role of patron of international capitalism very seriously. Early on, they advise the European countries to decolonize in a friendly fashion. Later on, they do not hesitate to proclaim first the respect for and then the support of the principle of Africa for the Africans. The United States is not afraid today of stating officially that they are the defenders of the right of all peoples to self-determination. Mr. Menon Williams' last journey is only the illustration of the consciousness which the Americans have that the third world ought not to be sacrificed. From then on, we understand why the violence of the native is only hopeless if we compare it in the abstract to the military machine of the oppressor. On the other hand, if we situate that violence in the dynamics of the international situation, we see at once that it constitutes a terrible menace for the oppressor. Persistent jackeries and Mau Mau disturbance unbalance the colony's economic life, but do not endanger the mother country. What is more important in the eyes of imperialism is the opportunity for socialist propaganda to infiltrate among the masses and to contaminate them. This is already a serious danger in the Cold War, but what would happen to that colony in case of real war, riddled as it is by murderous guerrillas? Thus, capitalism realizes that its military strategy has everything to lose by the outbreak of nationalist wars. Again, within the framework of peaceful coexistence, all colonies are destined to disappear, and in the long run, neutralism is destined to be respected by capitalism. What must at all costs be avoided is strategic insecurity. The breakthrough of enemy doctrine into the masses and the deep-rooted hatred of millions of men. The colonized peoples are very well aware of these imperatives which rule international political life. For this reason, even those who thunder denunciations of violence take their decisions and act in terms of this universal violence. Today, Peaceful coexistence between the two blocs provokes and feeds violence in the colonial countries. Tomorrow, perhaps we shall see the shifting of that violence after the complete liberation of the colonial territories. Perhaps we will see the question of minorities cropping up. Already, certain minority groups do not hesitate to preach violent methods for resolving their problems, and it is not by chance so the story runs, that in consequence Negro extremists in the United States organize a militia and arm themselves. It is not by chance either that in the so-called free world, 
there exist committees for the defense of Jewish minorities in the USSR. Nor an accident if General de Gaulle, in one of his orations, sheds tears over the millions of Muslims oppressed by the communist dictatorship. Both capitalism and imperialism are convinced that the struggle against racialism and the movements towards national freedom are purely and simply directed by remote control, fomented from outside. So they decide to use that very efficacious tactic, the Radio Free Europe Station, voice of the Committee for the Aid of Overruled Minorities. They practiced anti-colonialism, as did the French colonels in Algeria when they carried on subversive warfare with the SAS. Footnote 8. Or the psychological services. They use the people against the people. We have seen with what results. The atmosphere of violence and menaces, these rockets brandished by both sides, do not frighten nor deflect the colonized peoples. We have seen that all their recent history has prepared them to understand and grasp the situation. Between the violence of the colonies and that peaceful violence that the world is steeped in, there is a kind of complicit agreement, a sort of homogeneity. The colonized peoples are well adapted to this atmosphere. For once, they are up to date. Sometimes people wonder that the native, rather than give his wife a dress, buys instead a transistor radio. There is no reason to be astonished. The natives are convinced that their fate is in the balance, here and now. They live in the atmosphere of doomsday, and they consider that nothing ought to be let pass unnoticed. That is why they understand very well Fuma and Fumi, Lumumba and Shombe, Ahijo, Mumie, Kenyatta, and the men who are pushed forward regularly to replace him. They understand all these figures very well, for they can unmask the forces working behind them. The native and the underdeveloped man are today political animals in the most universal sense of the word. It is true to say that independence has brought moral compensation to colonized peoples, and has established their dignity, but they have not yet had time to elaborate a society or to build up and affirm values. The warming, light-giving center where man and citizen develop and enrich their experience in wider and still wider fields does not yet exist. Set in a kind of irresolution, such men persuade themselves fairly easily that everything is going to be decided elsewhere, for everybody, at the same time. As for the political leaders, when faced with this situation, they first hesitate, and then choose neutralism. There's plenty to be said on the subject of neutralism. Some equate it with a sort of tainted mercantilism, which consists of taking what it can get from both sides. In fact, neutralism, a state of affairs created by the Cold War, if it allows underdeveloped countries to receive economic help from both sides, does not allow either party to aid underdeveloped areas to the extent that is necessary. Those literally astronomical sums of money which are invested in military research, those engineers who are transformed into technicians of nuclear war, could in the space of 15 years raise the standard of living of underdeveloped countries by 60%. So we see that the true interests of underdeveloped countries do not lie in the protraction nor in the accentuation of this cold war. But it so happens that no one asks their advice. Therefore, when they can, they cut loose from it. But can they really remain outside it? At this very moment, 
France is trying out her atomic bombs in Africa. Apart from the passing of motions, the holding of meetings, and the shattering of diplomatic relations, we cannot say that the peoples of Africa have had much influence in this particular sector on France's attitude. Neutralism produces in the citizen of the third world a state of mind which is expressed in everyday life by a fearlessness and an ancestral pride strangely resembling defiance. The flagrant refusal to compromise and the tough will that sets itself against getting tied up are reminiscent of the behaviour of proud, poverty-stricken adolescents, who are always ready to risk their necks in order to have the last word. All this leaves Western observers dumbfounded, for, to tell the truth, there's a glaring divergence between what these men claim to be and what they have behind them. These countries without tramways, without troops, and without money have no justification for the bravado that they display in broad daylight. Undoubtedly, they are imposters. The third world often gives the impression that it rejoices in sensation and that it must have its weekly dose of crises. These men at the head of empty countries who talk too loud are most irritating. You'd like to shut them up, but on the contrary, they are in great demand. They are given bouquets. They are invited to dinner. In fact, we quarrel over who shall have them. And this is neutralism. They are 98% illiterate, but they are the subject of a huge body of literature. They travel a great deal. The governing classes and students of underdeveloped countries are gold mines for airline companies. African and Asian officials may, in the same month, follow a course on socialist planning in Moscow and one on the advantages of the liberal economy in London or at Columbia University. African trade union leaders leap ahead at a great rate in their own field. Hardly have they been appointed to posts in managerial organizations than they decide to form themselves into autonomous bodies. They haven't the requisite 50 years' experience of practical trade unionism in the framework of an industrial country, but they already know that the non-political trade unionism doesn't make sense. They haven't come to grips with the bourgeois machine, nor developed their consciousness in the class struggle, but perhaps this isn't necessary. Perhaps. We shall see that this will to sum everything up, which caricatures itself often in facile internationalism, is one of the most fundamental characteristics of underdeveloped countries. And that's our reading for this week. We'll be continuing it next week. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And the show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find lots of other leftist podcasts about books, video games, movies, anime. And that's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening. Keep reading. <laughs>